And I'm really excited this morning because we are starting off our series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Now, uh, like Ryan mentioned earlier, we've been kind of sneaky style in the Gospel of Mark, the last series that we just finished up. David was primarily looking at the spiritual practices that Jesus taught on and engaged in early on in his ministry, and we were doing that for the most part through the lens of the Gospel of Mark. Um, We're going to be hanging out in the Gospel of Mark uh, around through Easter or so. Actually, I think it'll take us right exactly to Easter. And because of that, I'd love to encourage you sometime in the next week or so, if you find some time, sit down and read or listen to the entire Gospel of Mark in one or two, no more than three sittings if possible. It takes about 30 to 60 minutes, so the the time it takes you to watch one episode of your favorite show. We're going to have great weather this week, so kicking back in the hammock in the shade with the Bible there, plowing through the Gospel of Mark, maybe taking a nice little stroll with your headphones in, listening to it on the audio app. Listening is not cheating, I promise. The Bible was written to be read aloud, so that's actually a great way to listen to it. I think it's a really good practice to do that anytime we're getting ready to study or anytime you're getting ready to study a book of the Bible. It's rather than simply just one chapter at a time, which is also a great practice, rather than only doing that, maybe start with reading the whole thing. Uh, I did this actually uh, four times in preparation for the Gospel of Mark because I just got something valuable every single time I listened to it straight through as a single story. It is a single story. It was meant to be read aloud in one sitting. So I'd love to encourage you to do that. I think you'll gain something from from that. Now, I, I think that we could probably make a solid argument, and I would definitely make the argument, that the four most important books that have ever been written in the history of literature are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and, and once you realize that, 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 for the most part, people agree that very likely the Gospel of Mark was actually the first of the Gospels to be written down, you might make an argument that at least in some ways, the Gospel of Mark just might be the single most important book that has ever been written in the history of literature. That is a pretty big claim. But I think the Gospels are definitely the, the, the most important books that have ever been written because they beg the most important question that anyone could possibly ask themselves. And at the same time that they beg that question, they present evidence that begins to help us start to answer that question. We could formulate this most important question in maybe thousands of different ways, but I think it boils down to something like this. Was Jesus the Messiah? Was he the Christ? Was he the Son of God? Was he God himself? Did he live? Did he die? Did he conquer death, resurrecting, conquering it for you and for me, so that whoever believes in him, whoever is faithful to him, will not die, but will have everlasting life, abundant life? I think this is the most important question we could possibly ask, because if the answer to this question is yes, then there's hope for you and for me and for all humanity. But... If the answer is no, then maybe the nihilists have it right, and the best way to live life is to burn it down and enjoy the flames. That's a lot hinging on one simple question. And the Gospel of Mark begs this question in a particularly intense way. It's a really fast-paced, boom, 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 boom kind of book. Mark doesn't waste time. He uses words like, like right away and immediately, almost 30 times in a really short book. It is a very condensed, very concise kind of cliff note style book that just goes from one point to the next to the next to the next. And there is this arc that we'll spend a good amount of time later today talking about. Of it. It's almost like a J-curve of just intensity going on through the Gospel of Mark. And it, and it leads you to this moment at the end of the book that is actually quite a cliffhanger and is going to beg the question, who do I 
say Jesus is? Do I think he's risen? Do I think he's alive? And so I'm excited to go through the Gospel of Mark because I'm hoping that you and me will ask ourselves this question. Who do I say Jesus is? Is he risen? Maybe you've asked yourself this question before and, and you've come to a conclusion. Great. It never hurts to dig in deeper and make sure you got it right. Maybe you've never asked this question before. You've never thought about, well, who, who is Jesus and why is this important? Well, great. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, be asking yourself this question. Certainly, if you read the book in one sitting, you're not going to be able to not ask that question at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And, 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 and Mark presents you with the evidence to have you start asking this question. You can dig in the Gospel of Mark for this. You can look at the other Gospels. You can look at the rest of the New Testament. If that's not enough, you can continue to look at the other historical documents by people who were around at the time who, who weren't followers of Jesus. What did the Jews at the time say? What did the Romans say? What did they say about Jesus? What is the evidence for who he was when he says, I'm, I'm the son of God? Like, who? Like, is that true? Is that real? So I'm excited to be doing that together as a family. Um, I'm excited to watch uh, many of us doing that, even as individuals. Uh, it's, it really is a, an awesome book. But today's message is going to be primarily a message of context, right? Like, like who, who do we think wrote this? Why do we think wrote this book? You know, all these little details in there. And then at the very, very end, we're going to super quickly shift gears, and we're going to have a little sermonette. We're going to zip on back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark after we've looked at the entire thing, and we're going to look at one thing that Jesus said and did early on and see if maybe God wants to say something to us uh, coming through that today. Um, so be ready for that little gear shift. It's coming. It'll be a quick one. Uh, we're trying to cover a lot of stuff this morning, an entire book of the Bible, right? And I'm hopeful that today will offer you some structure and some tools uh, for the next uh, couple of months as we go through the Gospel of Mark. So uh, concerning context for the Gospel of Mark, I think perhaps maybe the first most obvious question is who the heck was Mark? Well, Mark, otherwise known as John Mark, was not one of the 12 apostles. He was a follower of Jesus. It's possible that he followed Jesus before Jesus' death and resurrection, but most likely it seems that he didn't start following Jesus until after Jesus' death and resurrection. He was a younger guy than the apostles. Uh, we can see him reference a handful of time in the New Testament. We also have some early church historical documents outside of the New Testament that tell us a little bit about uh, John Mark. The first reference that we see to him, other than his gospel, the first reference that we see to him in the New Testament is in the book of Acts. And we hear that it was actually at Mark's mom's house where people were praying for Peter when Peter was in prison. Then a little while later, we see that it's John Mark who joins Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He was a relative of Barnabas, possibly his nephew, maybe his cousin, uh, definitely a younger guy. And so they bring uh, Paul and Barnabas, they bring him on the first missionary journey. And then before the journey is over, John Mark goes home, he leaves them. And this really ticks off Paul and Barnabas, I don't know, doesn't seem to be as bothered by it, because a little while later when the two of them, Paul and Barnabas, are getting ready to go off on their second missionary journey, uh, Barnabas says, hey, let's bring Mark with us. And Paul says, are you kidding? He ditched us. He's a quitter. I'm not bringing a guy who abandoned us. And, and, and it created such a, a heated disagreement between these two men that they split up, that Barnabas went one way with Mark and Paul went another, another way with a guy named Silas. I think that's a pretty cool name, by the way. Um, <laughs> They went two different directions, right? And then we don't really hear a lot about Mark for quite a while until later on he starts to pop up in some of the epistles and some of the letters in the New Testament. Peter says that he thinks of him like a son. And then, strangely enough, toward the ends of Paul's life, Paul starts to mention him really favorably. 
In fact, when Paul is in prison in Rome, he's on death row, essentially. He writes to Timothy, his best friend, his right-hand man, his spiritual son, and he says, hey, Timothy, when you come, don't forget to bring Mark with you because Mark is so valuable to me in ministry. Paul wanted him there with him at the end. Despite the horrible, rocky start to their relationship, we don't know why or when or, or where or how, but there was a reconciliation between these two men. And I don't know all that we can assume from this. I don't know all that that means, but I think we can at least assume that it means that there was something really special about the way John Mark was following Jesus, that he won over even grumpy old Paul, and that Paul wanted him there at the end of his life. I think that's a really beautiful thing. Uh, now, now, to learn a little bit more about Mark, we have to go outside of the New Testament. So we go to a quote from one of the early bishops in the church, uh, Bishop Papias, uh, which is a fun name, uh, Bishop of Heriopolis. It's a pretty fun name and title, Papias of Heriopolis. I feel like there's like a weird, cheesy rap song in there somewhere. I don't know. But Papias tells us uh, that, that the information that he records, he says he got from the elder, which could be a reference to John the Elder, otherwise known as John the Apostle. It might not have been. He's writing in AD 130, so Jesus' death and resurrection is kind of on the edge of living memory, right? If you, The best way I can think of it for us would be like World War II. Like there's still a handful of people around who remember World War II, but for the most part, a lot of those people have passed away. That's kind of when Papias writes this. And he tells us that if what he tells us is true, he says that, uh, that Mark was actually Peter's interpreter, and as he writes the gospel, his main goal is to, is to not mess up anything that Peter said. He's writing it from memory, Papias tells us. And he says, you know, it wasn't chronological because he was, he was recording based off of the sermons of Peter. As his interpreter, you could assume he would have heard his sermons over and over and over and over again. And he said his main goal wasn't chronology because Peter was just preaching sermons that were practical. He wasn't trying to give, you know, a, a, a beginning to end story of the chronology of Jesus' life. Mark's main concern was not to mess up anything, not to omit anything important, and not to make anything up as he records this. Now, we don't know all of the details of, of why Mark was recording this. It does seem we also have internal evidence, by the way, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, that it probably was, in fact, the perspective of Peter. When we see this, there's a couple of stories in the Gospel of Mark that only Peter or one or two other people were there for, so it probably had to have been Peter or one of them telling Mark these details. Also, whenever Peter does something really stupid, which he does a lot, whenever he does something really stupid in the Gospel of Mark, Mark handles it a lot more graciously, a lot more discreetly than the other Gospels do. So all these things seem to be pointing us to a pretty reasonable conclusion that, yeah, it probably was actually the perspective of Peter as recorded by Mark that we have in the Gospel of Mark. Now, again, like I was saying, we don't know exactly why he wrote this. Um, it seems to be that he probably wrote it in or before the early 8060s, which would line up with the, the persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. It's possible that maybe one of the reasons he wrote it was perhaps Peter had been martyred when he decided to write it down, and he's thinking, gosh, Peter's gone. He's not here to tell us this anymore. Someone's got to write this stuff down. It also seems as we read the Gospel of Mark that it would have probably been a really valuable tool for missionaries going in, in the Gentile world, in the, in the Roman Empire. You could see as you read it carefully, we'll talk about the way this works a little bit, but uh, it would have been really great to maybe hand in, put in the hands of a missionary who would show up to a new place where they haven't heard the Gospel and say, hey, can I read you guys this crazy nuts book? Like, it's seriously intense. And, and, and get, they get a bunch of people together, and they read the book from cover to cover. Again, 30 to 60 minutes, not that long. 
And then at the end of the book, it, it again leaves us at a cliffhanger, asking the question, is he alive? Is he risen? Was this really the Son of God, the Messiah? And everybody starts talking, and you can imagine the ministry that would take place after reading the Gospel of Mark. Now, those are some conjecture. We're kind of connecting some dots and making a couple of assumptions there. Uh, but those are all, I think, important context to understand the Gospel of Mark. The other thing that's really important to say about the Gospel of Mark is that it portrays the humanity of Jesus really vividly. He shows us more of Jesus' emotion than certainly Matthew or Luke do. Uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark, we can see that Jesus becomes, can become angry, that he can be grieved, that he can be tired and weary. That he can have sorrow. When we hear the story that, that Ryan just talked about of the rich young ruler, it's only in the Gospel of Mark that we hear the detail that Jesus loved the rich young ruler. When we hear the story of Jesus with the children, it's only in the Gospel of Mark that we hear the detail that Jesus picked the child up in his arms. And at the same time that Mark is so vividly showing us the humanity of Jesus, his clear intention is to present the evidence and to illustrate uh, the evidence for Jesus' divinity. So much so that this is actually how he begins his gospel. He says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that word good news, sometimes we translate it as gospel. Uh, the, the Greek word there is evangelion, and it's the word for when a king or a general or an emperor, when they come back from war victorious and they bring the evangelion, they bring the good news, like, hey, we won the war. And Christ, it's worth noting, is not Jesus' last name. It, it, it's a title. It means Messiah. And so this gospel begins by saying the beginning of the evangelion, of the returning king's good news after victory, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, that is quite a bit of tension packed into one simple sentence. Can you imagine if I said, hey, let me read you a book about a guy who says that he's the Son of God and the Messiah, and, and, and by the way, a, an emperor who just won a war. Okay, I'm in. I'm sold. That was, that was a pretty good introduction. I'll, I'll bite on that trailer. And so this is the introduction uh, to the Gospel of Mark. This is, interestingly enough, the only time where Mark will give us his opinion of who Jesus is. From this moment on, through the rest of the book, Mark will simply present the evidence. He will show us the things that Jesus did. He will show us the things that Jesus said. He will show us how other people react to Jesus, and he will show us other people's opinions of Jesus, but he won't show us his opinion again. And then he will leave us, once again, at a cliffhanger at the very end, asking the question, who do I think Jesus is? Is he risen? Uh, this is going to bring us now to a, a, little, a little bit of, uh, you know, junior high or high school English class. Uh, I, I've brought this up before, I think, it, or at least this particular illustration, but it's helpful in understanding story. Uh, when you were in junior high or English, or maybe if you were a little ahead of the game in, in elementary school, you learned about the plot line, right? This little kind of jupe that, that all stories do. All stories and all humanity and all cultures that are any, any tiny bit worth listening to follow this plot line. Which, by the way, total side note, I think is an indication of something God placed on the hearts of all humanity so that we would respond to his story of our redemption in Jesus Christ. But uh, the plot line... It starts off with, with an introduction, right, which is the, the setup of the tension, of the conflict. You can see Mark has done that already, right? Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God, Evangelion. There's tension internal, like, like just inherent in that sentence right there. 
And so we start off with the tension, and then we have the rising action as things get a little more intense. Then we have the climax, which is the most intense moment of the entire story, and then the falling action and the conclusion. The Gospel of Mark is no exception. It follows a plot line like everything else. Now, we got a little graphic that we put up here, and I'm going to be kind of craning my neck a little bit. Sorry for people on the camera. Um, but, uh, but this is essentially the basic plot line of the Gospel of Mark. It follows this. It has a little subclimax there, so it's a little bump, kind of a fun roller coaster. Right? So we have uh, what I've titled kind of Rising Action 1, the first movement. There's a handful of movements over the course of the Gospel of Mark. And this is chiefly concerned with inversions. Jesus is flipping our understanding of things. And then Rising Action 2, where there is an intensification, a lot of that Gospel of Mark really intense boom, boom, boom stuff happening here, a great intensification of of the question of the divinity of Jesus. Who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? And then we have this subclimax of the story, this moment where it kind of peaks and gets really intense, but there's more to go. Uh, the transfiguration, which is really resolving for anybody who's paying any sort of attention, uh, who buys what's being said. It's resolving the question of his divinity. And then we have this reprieve, a couple more inversions, no big deal at this point in time. And then we have rising action three as Jesus is on his way to the cross and the climax, which is the cross. And then we have the conclusion, uh, he is risen. And so we're going to zoom in and go through this for a couple of minutes here. And so if we can go and zoom into that rising action one movement, right? Again, it begins with the introduction that we just talked about, uh, where Paul, or sorry, where, where John Mark is telling us, hey, Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God, Evangelion, right? And then he has a little more in the intro. He tells us about some prophecy from this guy, Isaiah, right? It's been a long time coming. And so the tension is set up of, is this guy the one that was prophesied about? Is he the Messiah? And in these inversions, we have so many of them, but Jesus is inverting sickness itself in healing. He He's inverting our understanding of sickness. He's inverting our understanding of the Sabbath. He's inverting family and our understanding of that. He's inverting their understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And he's inverting uh, un, un, the unclean, uh, those who are unclean and things that are unclean and their understanding of the unclean. And then this uh, rising action one movement is punctuated by the beheading of John the Baptist. Uh, things get pretty intense when somebody literally loses their head. If you've ever been paying attention to a story, the moment heads get chopped off, it's like, okay, here we are, boom, boom. Things are going, like things are, things are ramping up, right? And so that moves us on into rising action two, this next kind of movement, which is that greater intensification of the question of his divinity, which that question, by the way, was building for sure in rising action one. It's also worth noting, by the way, that there's lots of miracles and details and chapters and stories that are not on this. This is just like a really high-level zoomed out view of the plot line. Um, and so in Rising Action 2, after the beheading of John the Baptist, we had this weird chunk of stuff about bread, uh, which really is primarily uh, like Jesus's miracles are becoming massive. Before they were private and secret, and then they kind of spiraled out of the control. And now all of a sudden, on two separate occasions, he is feeding thousands of people miraculously by taking a couple of loaves of bread and just never stopping to split and divide it, right? And so everybody's like, this guy's giving me food. That sound feels pretty Messiah type type stuff to me. And then there's, he's talking about weirdly about the, the yeast of the Pharisees and his disciples are confused and they're honestly, it's really funny, they're just left hungry by whatever he's saying about the yeast of the Pharisees. And then things get, get a little more intense. He's talking to his disciples and he, and he says, hey, uh, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, who, if you remember, just lost his head. He's dead now. Uh, other people say that you're Elijah. Others still say that you're maybe one of the prophets. And then he says, who do you say I am? And we have this massive mic drop moment in the story where Peter says, well, I think you're the Messiah. 
And then we get this boom, 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 gospel of Mark, rapid fire, like, you know, exponential J-curve intensity, where immediately after that, the very next story that we have is the, is the first of a triad, a three moments that are connected of Jesus foretelling of his death and resurrection. Every time he says this, it just goes right over everybody's head like they're not even listening when he's like, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life three days later. And they're like, I don't know what that means. And he's like, it means I'm going to die and come back to life three days later, guys. Pay attention. So we have the first of that moment. Then immediately after that, again, we have the subclimax of the story, the transfiguration. It's literally at a mountaintop. It's like metaphorically plot line. It's a peak of the story. But also Jesus and his three friends, his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, they climb this mountain. And once they get to the very top of the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. Like, he, he, he's, he's glowing. His clothes, we're told, become whiter than anybody could possibly bleach clothes. And, and they're literally glowing. And it is reminiscent of when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai and he saw the radiating glory of God. And now all of a sudden, boom, there's Moses and there's Elijah. Two guys who have been gone for a long time all of a sudden appear out of nowhere. And now we hear a voice coming from the cloud that says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. For those of us reading the book who've been wondering, is this guy divine? I don't know. It seems pretty clear right now. He's glowing. You know, there's a voice coming out of the cloud saying, this is my son. Listen to him. There's a couple of dead guys sitting right there, you know? Like, this is a really intense moment, right? And then immediately after that, we have the second of the triad of Jesus, uh, you know, foretelling his death and resurrection, a little reprieve, uh, where we have just some more inversions, Jesus flipping things upside down again, no big deal, he just does that now. And then we have the third of the triad of his foretelling of his death and resurrection. And that moves us into, man, Mary is so on these slides, thank you. Um, the third of the rising action movements, uh, which is on the way to the cross. And so this kicks off with a triumphal entry, a very significant tension-building moment where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and it is an Evangelion moment. They receive him the way you would receive a, a king, an emperor, a, a messiah, right? And they're laying down their cloaks on the road and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, save us. They are clearly saying, the multitudes, the masses, all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, they're saying, we think this is the Messiah. He's going to rise up as a military and a political leader, and he's going to deliver us from Rome. He's going to establish his kingdom and his dynasty that will never end, and we will never be conquered again. That's what they're thinking is going to happen. And weirdly, he's on a donkey instead of a stallion, and everybody's like, well, I don't know, I would just I would ignore that weird detail. Right? But then we have uh, this next little moment of all this testing, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, got, they, don't like the, they don't think he's the Messiah, or if he is, they don't like it. And so they're trying to poke holes in him. They're trying to test him. They're trying to trap him. But Jesus passes all of their tests with flying colors. In fact, to be honest, he kind of smashes their tests to pieces. And then there's this weird section of Jesus with these intense end-time prophecies, and you're confused, but you can tell it's foreboding and, and, and like, oh, what's going on? End times, run to the hills, that kind of stuff. And then we have this anointing, this moment where this woman anoints Jesus the way you would anoint a king, pouring oil on him, but also the way you would anoint a body before its burial. Then we have the Last Supper. He eats with his disciples. Then we have, uh, and then on the Last Supper, he again uh, kind of offhandedly at this point just kind of casually mentions he's going to die and raise again, uh, which is foretelling of the things that are actually going to happen in just a bit here. And then we have the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes and he prays, and then he's betrayed, and then the Romans come and he's arrested. And Mark makes it really clear. He tells us in a uh, very 
concisely and very vividly that his disciples all run away from him. In fact, we have a detail in the Gospel of Mark that we don't get in the other Gospels where there was this one follower of Jesus, probably not one of the 12, possibly, we don't really know who it was, a young man who was a follower of Jesus who for some reason all he was wearing was a sheet don't know why. Um, maybe he was camping nearby. I bet he wished he had worn his pajamas that night. I don't know what was going on. But all he was wearing was a sheet. And he was the only other person who was arrested with Jesus. He was taken by the Romans. And he ran away. The way he escaped was he dropped his, his sheet and he ran away naked. This young follower of Jesus would rather run away naked from Jesus than be arrested with him and stay with him. And then Jesus is, is taken to a, like a religious court, and they ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And he says, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand with power. And for this reason, they torture him, they crucify him, he is executed, he's dead. Now they lay him in a tomb, and for three days he's there. On the third day, two women, both named Mary, they come to the tomb wanting to anoint his body, just like Mary did one of those two women did a few days earlier because it's something you do to honor the dead. And they're looking for someone to roll away the stone, but they realize it's already rolled away, and they look inside, and Jesus' body isn't there. Instead, there's a young man all dressed in white who says, you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. You'll find in, in Galilee, now go and tell the disciples. And the two women, they run away in fear, Mark tells us. And this is where Mark seems to end his gospel. At that cliffhanger, he's risen. Well, and you're like, but where's the next scene where we get to see him risen? And you might be saying, well, I look in my Gospel of Mark, and I see that that's chapter 16, verse 8, but I have a verse 9 through 20 uh, that, that actually shows some of those details. And it's worth talking about that for a second. We, we, it's a little, little, little side quest here. We talked about this a little less than a year ago in our Credo series when we talked about the authority of Scripture, about these specific passages, but it's worth discussing here. Uh, because it, you'll look at those, those verses, 9 through 20, and you'll say, well, there is more to the story there. But then if you look closely, you'll see a footnote that says our oldest manuscripts don't actually contain verses 9 through 20. And this is worth talking about because some people who are trying to poke a hole in, in the conclusion that I would draw um, from the story of Mark and from the Gospels and from the New Testament, which is that Jesus is risen, he is alive, he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God, God himself. People who try to poke holes in that will say something really misleading here. They'll say, did you know that the oldest gospel doesn't contain the resurrection of Jesus? That I, I, you could not possibly phrase that in a more misleading way. People who are phrasing it that way are either just pulling out a little talking point that they learned from some grumpy atheist online, uh, or they're being intentionally deceitful, or they haven't, they simply haven't, they're just parroting something, right? They just simply haven't actually read and studied the Gospel of Mark. Because the Gospel of Mark, as we've already hit, is soaked in the claims of Jesus' death and resurrection and, and in evidence for his divinity with or without verses 9 through 20. The other thing that's worth noting, right, is whoever added in verses 9 through 20, there's uh, one thing we can say for sure about that individual, and a second thing we can say for probably about what that individual did. The first thing is that there is nothing in verses 9 through 20 that is not corroborated elsewhere in the Holy Scriptures in the New Testament, not a single detail. They were very careful to do that. The second thing is that probably they very well may have been the person to add that footnote. In fact, our old, some of our oldest manuscripts that do contain these verses also contain the footnote that says, hey, these aren't original verses. And, and so maybe it was them who added it, maybe not, but if it was them who added it, it's like they said, hey, 
you know, the gospel of Mark ends on a cliffhanger. Uh, we used to, you know, use this for missionaries and a conversation would follow, but now we're studying in church. So uh, I'm going to add the rest of the story here as we see it in the rest of the gospel. And by the way, in some of the, some of the letters to the churches that predate even the writing of any of the gospels, we have a creed that's probably only a couple years after the resurrection that affirms his death and resurrection. And so he, he probably, whoever this individual was, they said, I'm not going to make anything up, and, and I'm going to make sure that people know, hey, uh, I didn't, like, this wasn't Mark. This is an added footnote kind of situation here. Um, and so then, then we're left with the question, well, well, why does the Gospel of Mark end at, at, at verse 8? Well, perhaps something happened. Perhaps Mark passed away before he finished it. Perhaps there were other verses and we lost them because they were destroyed or someone pulled them out. Before studying for this message, I would have kind of leaned on that side. Um, the other option, though, is that Mark, in fact, ended it at verse 8, chapter 16, verse 8, on purpose. And the more I've studied Mark in preparation for the series, the more I'm leaning kind of heavily now in that direction. Well, why would Mark leave his book on a cliffhanger? I think it might even be clearer already at this point. If you want to make a point, one of the best ways to do that is with tension. If you want people to answer a question, one of the best ways to do that is not to ask the question, but to present the evidence that forces them to ask themselves that question. Because that's really what you want, is for people to ask themselves, who do I believe Jesus is? Is he alive? And again, imagine you're a missionary and you're reading this book and it ends on this cliffhanger What's going to happen afterwards, right? Have you ever watched a, a series finale, like of a really good TV show, sorry, a season finale of one of your favorite shows, and it, and it ends on a cliffhanger, right? And, and you're watching with a bunch of your friends, you're on the sectional in the living room, everybody's sitting down on the couch, kicking back and enjoying some food and some soda or whatever, or, or you know, fancy bubbly water these days, because nobody does soda because it's not healthy for you. I don't know. But you're watching the show, and, it, and as soon as the cliffhanger fades to black and, the, and the, the season finale is over, what happens? everybody starts saying, what do you think happened? What do you think happened? Is he alive? Is he dead? And then, and then parties begin to form, and this couch thinks, well, the guy's alive, and this couch over here says, no, no, he's definitely going to be dead next year. Like, well, that's what we're going to see. He's dead. And then there's one guy over here is a weird robot theory that you're like, I don't know, what, what, what show were you watching? I don't know. And, and people begin forming these opinions really strongly. And I think this is exactly the moment that Mark is trying to bring us to, the moment where we start discussing among ourselves, is he alive? Is he risen? I don't know, what do you think? Let's talk about it. Let's look at the evidence. And let's, stick to our, and let's stick to what we believe about whether or not he's alive, whether or not he's risen. Let's discuss this. I think this is the moment Mark is bringing us to, and this is the moment that I'm hoping that you and I will find ourselves at as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Now here is that big gear shift I was telling you about. You can see the quickest little sermonette we've ever had as we actually get into something that Jesus did early on, we'll rewind all the way back towards the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 2 and look at Jesus' inversion of the Sabbath. And so um, in Mark chapter 2, uh, Jesus uh, is the first of two stories where Jesus pretty thoroughly inverts the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath and people of Israel's understanding of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is something, along with all the law of Moses, that the people of Israel are taking very seriously at this moment in time. Because they're of the belief that if they could only just have all of Israel 
obey the law perfectly for one day, then Messiah would come and deliver them from the Romans, that he would become a military and political leader who would establish an unbroken dynasty and Israel would be free of oppression forever. That's what they're hoping will happen if they can really nail the law of God perfectly. And Sabbath is a holy day that happens once every single week. And on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. And the law of Moses has some rules for the Sabbath and what you can and can't do, but they have added all of this extra stuff, trying to get it exactly right, trying to white-knuckle their way through the law of God, because they have come to the opinion that God is really serious about his laws, and that he's just one of those people who has rules and loves rules and really is going to just punch in the face if you don't obey his rules. And so... Uh, This is what happens. One Sabbath day, he was going, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so here's what's happening. Jesus and his disciples, they're on a walk. His disciples reach out their hand and they grab a little snack from the side of the road, some heads of grain. And and the Pharisees are like, whoa, buddy, it's the Sabbath, you're doing work. Never mind, they're just having a snack. Like, it's just a head of grain, pop it in your mouth. But to them, that's harvesting, that's winnowing, that's preparing a meal. And they said, Jesus, do you see that? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna tell them no snacking? You know, that, that's work. And you can just feel the eye roll coming from Jesus, right? And he says, gosh, man, have you not even read the Bible the word of God. Have you not, don't you know about how like God was more concerned for David and his hunger than he was for David eating some bread he wasn't supposed to eat? See, they've looked at, at God and, and they've turned, the Pharisees have, have turned the Sabbath into a burden. Jesus says, no, no, no. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a gift. It's important to say, I don't think Jesus is nullifying the Sabbath here. He's turning it back into a gift. The Pharisees had misunderstood the Sabbath. They had misunderstood this gift from their father and assumed that it was a burden, a list of rules that they had to follow, or he was going to be really ticked off. And I understand why they came to that conclusion. They misunderstood. It's like when you have a text message with someone, and they're perfectly fine and happy and and nothing's wrong, but you misread their tone, and you're like, oh my gosh, this person's so mean. And then you see them in person like, oh, I'm so sorry. No, I wasn't grumpy at all. I I should have used more emojis with smiley faces, you know? (laughs) This is the interaction that the people of Israel had with God. They had misunderstood his heart, and Jesus came to put a name to the face to put flesh to the word. So they would see that God, yeah, he's the God of justice, but he's the only one that brings justice and mercy together. He's a kind and a loving and a gentle God who picks up the children and loves the rich young ruler even as he walks away. And and when we misunderstand the heart of the Father, we misinterpret his gifts as burdens. Uh, A couple weeks ago, uh, my wife and my son Silas, who is a year now, he was just under a year at the time. We were sitting down for dinner and Silas had just hit this point as, as an infant where he was like starting to get a little picky and choosy about his food. He's, he really is a very easy kid. 
but so it was very weird that during this meal, though, he was like, nope, I don't care what you give me. I don't want it. I don't want dinner. I don't want food. I don't want to be, be in my high chair. Like, not happening, right? And so we were giving him everything we could find in the fridge, you know, all his favorite, you know, fruits and veggies and, and meats and all these things. And, and, and he would like, it was just everything we could do to have him take a bite. And then he would just pick it up and, rah, and throw it on the ground and laugh because he gave it to the dog. But he was grumpy because he didn't want to eat the food, you know. And after we had just like barely squeezed in like a minimum amount of calories into this kid that night, um, you know, we'd been done eating for forever because it takes him a million years to eat because he's a baby. And... Um, and so we, it was dessert time, and we had some really yummy kind of Danish things left over from Christmas, which was just a few days before this. And we had a couple of chocolate ones that we were not going to give him because we were saving chocolate for his first birthday. And we had just a little sliver of this really delicious kind of fruit-filling, custardy, yummy, just goozing in sugar Danish thing, just a little sliver left. And we were like, should we give it to him? We were like, yeah, like, that'll be fun, you know, like, who cares? We don't need to be good parents all the time. And so with a big, huge smile on our face, we put this super sugary dessert right in front of him, thinking this is, like, by far the sweetest thing he's ever even touched. Like, he's going to love it. But as soon as we put it in front of him on his tray table, he grabs it and he goes, ah, and throws it on the ground, and immediately the dog eats it. And my heart just broke a little bit. Because I thought, buddy, you misunderstood the heart of your mother and father right now. You thought we were just trying to make you do something you didn't want to do because we're mean. That was literally the sweetest gift we've ever given you in your entire life, and you fed it to the dog. You rejected it because you thought it was a burden, because you misunderstood our heart. And I think you and I, just like Silas and just like the Pharisees, I think we do this to the Lord sometimes. We reject his good gifts because we misunderstand his heart. Not to mention all of the veggies he was trying to make us eat were because he loves us in the first place, but we reject even the sweet desserts he gave us. And, 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 we, and we turn them into a burden instead of a gift. My question is, what are the gifts that God has given you that you've begun to look at as a burden? Maybe your work has felt like a burden to you. Your coworkers, the job, your employer, your employees, maybe it just feels like, like a huge burden that you don't want to go through, you don't want to wake up in the morning for it, and you've forgotten what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, enjoy the work of your hands, for this is God's gift to you. Maybe your spouse has begun to feel like a burden to you. Maybe you're tired of having that same fight over and over and over again. You're tired of the thing that they always do or the thing that they never do or where they leave their shoes or the which way do they put the toilet paper or whatever, you know. Or honestly, you're probably tired of things more serious than that. But those ones, they can get you. And they feel like a burden and you've forgotten that this person is God's easer, God's ally, God's help for you. That they are the other half that, 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 that completes in a unique and beautiful way the image of God. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the Bible says. This is the person that is one of God's primary tools for growing and strengthening you and for healing you. They're not a burden, they're a gift. Maybe your children have begun to feel like a burden to you. Maybe, you know, you have younger kids and, and you just wish you could go to the bathroom in peace, right? Or just, or like get a, 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 a nice smooth night's sleep, you know, without having to get up and deal with what you have to get up with. Maybe your kids are a little older, they're teenagers, and you just wish you could go home and not hear a door slam once 
just for one day, no door slams. And you've forgotten what it says in Psalm 127, that children are God's gift. They are like arrows in the hands of a warrior, and blessed is he whose quiver is full. Maybe it's your siblings who feel like a burden. Maybe you, like me, have a really broken relationship with your, with your siblings, and you're just tired of the empty feeling, the very awkward interactions, the sad birthdays that come and go without a text message. And it just feels like a burden that you're tired of carrying and you've forgotten that even with that broken relationship, they are still God's gift to you. There is a love there that is unique in the world. They know things about you and you know things about them that is a blessing to have someone who knows that. Blessing from the Lord. Maybe it's your parents that feel like a burden. Maybe you're younger and you're tired of them, you know, actually having say in everything you do. Maybe you're a little bit older but still young and you're tired of them still thinking that they get to tell you what you can and can't do. Maybe you're a, a little bit older and you're in the phase of life where you're having to care for your parents and it costs a lot. And you're beginning to think that they're a burden and you've forgotten that the Bible says, honor your father and mother. Why? So that it may go well with you all the days of your life. They are a blessing to you no matter what phase of life you are in, no matter what your relationship, no matter how broken your relationship with them is or isn't, they are a blessing to you. Maybe it's your house that feels like a burden, it's fallen apart, or you wish you had a house, you wish you weren't living in an apartment, you wish you owned and you weren't renting, or you own and you wish you didn't have a mortgage and a water heater to replace, and this feels like a burden to you, and you've forgotten that this is literally the way God keeps the rain off your head as a blessing every single night. It is a gift to you. Maybe it's your body that feels like a burden. Maybe you're tired of the chronic pain and the illness and your body failing you. Maybe you look in the mirror and you don't like the way you look. You wish you looked a little more like this, a little less like this. Maybe you weren't so skinny. Maybe you weren't so large. Maybe you looked a little bit more like that person and a little bit less like you. That's what you're hoping. It feels like a burden that you can't get there. Or maybe you're one of the people who looks in the mirror and you think, this is the wrong body. I see the body of a man that doesn't feel right. I see the body of a woman that doesn't feel right. In whatever way your body feels like a burden, I think you've forgotten that this is not a burden. It is a gift from God. That The same God who made you made the sun and the moon and the stars and the mountains and the oceans and the snow and the valleys and the fields and the flowers. And he made you. He crafted your body. He stitched you together in your mother's womb and he stepped back and you were the only thing in all of creation about which he said it is very good. And you are the only thing, your body is the only thing in all of creation that he says, this is my temple. I will indwell this body in a unique and a special and a holy way. Let's be men and women who recognize the gifts of the Lord with thanksgiving and praise. And don't fall into the trap of the Pharisees turning his gifts into burdens. Thank you, Jesus, for your gifts. We love you and we worship you. Amen.